Our passage today is from Joshua 7. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So about three thousand men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there until evening. And the elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, O sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us in the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Lord, what can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I have commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them in their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward clan by clan, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come forward family by family, and the family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. He who is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all the things that belong to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was taken. And the clans of Judah came forward, and he took the Zerahites. And he had the clans of Zerahites come forward by families, and Zemri was taken. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia and 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was hidden in his tent 
with the silver underneath. And they took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua, and all the Israelites spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold witch, his sons and daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, sheep, his tent, all that he had in the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger, and therefore that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Albert's been preaching through the book of Amos, so I thought let's take a break from the heaviness of Amos and um, look at a family stoning. <laughs> it's great to be here with you all this morning. So back in South Africa, I was part of something called the Baptist Summer Camp. I was part of a Baptist church for about 10 years. And the summer camp was this huge camp that we had at the end of the year where all kind of the Baptist churches from around South Africa, all their youth would come together. And at its peak, we used to have two camps back to back of like a thousand young people at both. And I was involved in that probably for 13 years in total, but 10 years in a row, and just took on a whole bunch of different roles. So I was a speaker the one year, I was in charge of prayer the one year, I was camp pastor the one year. And the one year I was in charge of organizing food and like just helping with the kitchen staff. We had a huge team and everything. And as you can maybe imagine, I mean, I sometimes cook for four people, but a thousand young people plus leaders. So it just becomes this immensely huge undertaking. And so it was like a really great experience of kind of like just learning how to cater and bulk and all those kind of things. But I remember that it was in this place called Kimberley, which was like this kind of nowhere place in the middle of the country. And it was kind of the place that was closest to everyone. And so the team arrives a couple of days earlier. I go into Kimberley to try to sort out meat for a week of a thousand people. And not knowing the place, kind of wandering around. It's a very farmer-orientated town, so very rustic people that behave and act a little bit differently from us in the English towns or whatever. So like really heavy Afrikaans farmers. And I eventually find this butcher's shop and I walk into the butcher and I don't walk into the butcher, but I walk into his shop. And there's this really weird thing where like all around there's like little pieces of meat hanging from the ceiling tied with little bits of string, kind of just out of reach or just almost in reach. And there's little pieces of like rump and sirloin and fillet or filet and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking this is really strange what's this about and so I asked the butcher what's happening here and some kind of special or something and he goes well actually we're running a competition at the moment and if you can jump up and grab any one of those pieces of meat in your mouth we will give you three cows now here in America land you probably don't understand what three cows are worth but when you're trying to feed a thousand young people three cows goes a long way and cows are like 15,000 rand each and so it's like a big deal and I'm thinking that sounds too good to be true and so I say to him there must be some kind of catch what's the catch and he says you get three chances to jump up and grab a piece of meat in your mouth if you don't do it then I cut off one of your hands. <laughs> so now I'm like whoa three cows is amazing and so I'm looking at this meat and I'm looking at my hands and I'm looking at the meat I'm thinking about it I'm thinking about all the money we could save I'm looking at my hand I really like my hand I figured without my left hand I'd still be okay but we heard earlier you need two hands and I'm tempted I'm really tempted look at the meat 
look at my hand, look at the butcher. Eventually, I turned to him and I had to say, I'm sorry, I can't do it. The stakes are too high. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for another opportunity to just gather as your people, to gather as the church. We are excited and maybe humbled to hear stories about people who faced death and held on to three basic words, Jesus, save me. Words that we probably don't feel that we need all that often and maybe words that we should be crying out a lot more. And as we head up to Easter, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, the moment that you went into the town on a donkey, proclaiming, in a sense, your kingship and your majesty, the king is here. Father, just remind us of those words, and especially in our lives where we do need them, where we do need to be saved, where we do need to be rescued, where we do need you to come and, and just clean out the mess, to fill us with grace and forgiveness and love and life to give us concern and care for the world around us, to make us interested and involved in things that really matter, to be storing up treasures on heaven where they do not rust and where moth and thief cannot get to them. We just want to take a moment and just focus on that. Thank you, God, that you are king. Thank you that you are our king, that you invite us to be your children. You invite us to be at the table. Help us to never take that for granted. Help us to really be able to hear what you're wanting to say to us today, even if it may not be a popular message, even if it may not be a politically correct term that we like to use anymore. I just pray that your Holy Spirit will just shine on the sin in our life that needs to be dealt with. Make us pure, make us holy, make us right with you once more. And help us to go out and make things right with other people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So really bad joke, but kind of setting the tone for what I want to talk about. And just that idea of choice, which is what kind of so much of this is all about. So much of life for us in the West, especially being made about choice. American land, land of the free. And really what that means for the most part, for most of us, I think, is land of the free to choose. Those are the rights we have, that we can have a choice about where to live, about where we're allowed to worship, about where we're going to send our kids to school, about where we can work, things like that. So much choice, 27 different types of mayonnaise, and still not a single one that I like. Free will, the idea that God has given us free will, the right to choose. And it was that way right from the very beginning, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, their job, or one of the jobs that they were given, was to name the animals. And, I mean, that must have been a fun thing. We kind of inherit the names of the animals, and we kind of wonder how they came about, and, like, why would you call a giraffe a giraffe? And Adam and Eve's time, they probably didn't call it a giraffe. It was probably a... I don't really know what they spoke, but I'm imagining early language might have been a bit different. They were created and placed in a paradise, the most beautiful place in the world, with all these opportunities, all these amazing things. And yet somehow, they still managed to end up in the vicinity of the one thing they're not supposed to be around, they're not supposed to touch. The tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. We know they had sex. We know they had wildlife. We know that they had nature. 
beautiful waterfalls, rivers, fields, nothing destroyed by man or technology or mechanisms, just like stunning, beautiful things. And they chose a fruit. Oh, boom. Turns out for them that the stakes were high. Maybe the stakes were too high. They made a choice and it affected the rest of mankind. They made a choice and we live in the consequence of that. And the rest of the story of the Bible is the consequence of God kind of fixing and healing and bringing together, um, restoring the relationship between God and man. And we see it from the time of Achan and how there's a chosen nation and how God works with them, but there's this distance of God working through Moses and through the priests and through the judges and through the kings and the distance. And Jesus comes along and kind of brings that distance completely closer. Now we can speak to God as Abba, Father. When he dies, the curtain in the temple is torn to show that we now have access to God. Um, you are no longer slaves, but I call you brothers. You are now the children of God. How great the love of God is that we can be called the children of God. And so slowly this process of just bringing it closer and closer together, restoring things the way that they were meant to be. Matthew 6, 19 to 24, Jesus speaking, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And this key part in verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I think Jesus is just giving that as an example. You can't serve God and money. There's the bigger general picture of no serving two masters. Anything else you find in your life that you put in the primary position pushes God out of that primary position. And so how many of us have chosen money? How many of us have chosen things? How many of us have chosen experiences? How many of us have chosen ourselves? The stakes are high. What Jesus is saying, what he puts in the face of the disciples and all those that followed him is that you have to make a choice. You cannot serve both. And we know that the Israelites knew this. The end of Joshua 24, the Israelites have gone into the promised land, which they've waited a really long time and generations to get into, 40 years of wandering around in the desert because they chose again to disobey God and doubt and do things their own way. In chapter 24, verse 14 and 15, Joshua stands in front of the people and makes this proclamation or kind of this challenge to them. And he says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Choose this day who you will serve. And if you're a Christian, the reality is that that's a decision you make every day. And maybe you're not aware that you're making it. 
It's a decision I make every day. Am I going to serve God today? Am I going to follow God? Becoming a Christian is not this prayer that I said once at the front of a meeting when I put my hand up and then it was kind of deal done for the rest of life. Every day when I get up, I choose, do I serve God today? Do I serve myself? Do I serve God today? Do I put my career ahead? Do I serve God today? Do I put money or things on the pedestal? So Israel knew that there was a choice. And also Israel remembered that the stakes were high. The story we heard this morning, Joshua 7, the son of Achan. And then in Luke 9, 23, Jesus spells it out one more time. He said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He said to them all, if anyone would come after me, you must deny yourself, you must take up your cross and follow me. You have to live as if you are dead to everything else. I need to be in control. Otherwise, you're not following me. And then I think an important thing for us to really get, and I really believe that a lot of Christians don't get this. I think probably in our Sunday school brain knowledge, we have this as an idea or concept and we'd write it down and we'd say we hold to it. But I'm really not sure that we believe this completely. One of my favorite verses, maybe yours in the Bible, and it's always my favorite verse for the second part. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That is what Jesus came for. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. But the first part, I feel like it's probably important because Jesus said it. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I think one of the things we know in our heads, but most of us probably don't really believe, is that we have an enemy. There is a person or a force or a spirit that is working against us. Jesus spoke about it. The Bible gives us this picture of the enemy, the devil, Satan. Jesus gives us a picture of what he's about. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. In 1 Peter 5, 6, we get another picture of that, where it says, Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. But be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. I don't know if you have lions in your country, except maybe in the zoos. But if you've ever seen a hungry lion... And if you've ever seen anything get in the way of a hungry lion, you know that the hungry lion generally wins, unless maybe it's an elephant. There was a story a couple of years ago about a zoo somewhere in the east where a guy got this idea that God wanted him to witness to the lion. And he climbed into a lion cage in the zoo or a lion space in the zoo to convert the lion. The story doesn't make complete sense. But the lion won and this dude got munched. And there's lots of stories in South Africa of like game parks where people get out of their cars and try to take photos of lions and get a bit too close. And the lion generally tends to win. A roaring lion is not going to leave a mark on you. 
It's not going to just wound you or hurt you a little bit. If you are in a fight with a roaring lion, you will die. It is going to kill you. A roaring lion wants to devour you. And the devil is being compared to this lion. And then in James chapter 1, we get this picture of how sin works. Verse 12 to 15, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted, when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So just the picture of sin, that it starts out as temptation. Temptation isn't sin. Jesus was tempted. But when temptation or desire is left unchecked, then it births, it grows into, it becomes sin. And when sin is left unchecked, it kills us. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And it's important that we get this. And this is the point that I was making at the beginning that I don't think we really get. We might kind of believe it, that we've kind of got an enemy and that... I think most of us, maybe at the extent of our belief, believe that the devil wants us to have a bad day. Like that's kind of practically how we live it out. The devil has it in for us. Like I got a puncture, somebody took my parking space, the devil is at work in my life. And it's important that we realize that the devil wants to kill you. The devil wants to destroy you. Until we really get that, until we really understand that that is his plan. The devil doesn't want to injure you. He doesn't want to give you a bad day. He doesn't want to put you in the hospital. He wants to destroy you. And until we get that, we're not going to take him seriously. And if you don't take a lion seriously, you get devoured. If you don't take sin seriously, it becomes death. Any sin left unchecked. If you follow the natural path of that sin, if you think of something like a lie... You tell a lie, and then at some stage, you've got to tell a second lie to cover the first lie. And then it just keeps on getting bigger and bigger. And eventually, like you get taken down because you've created something so big. And instead of just getting caught with a lie, you start to lose friendships and you start to get into serious trouble. And eventually, any kind of sin that you follow the natural path, it leads to death. The devil wants to steal and he wants to kill and destroy. He wants to steal your happiness. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal your purity. He wants to steal your relationships. And the devil is making headway in relationships. We just need to look at kind of marriage statistics. That is an area where the devil has done a lot of damage. The devil wants to take you down. And until we realize that, we're really not going to take him seriously enough. And we're probably going to keep on getting taken down. And so if we look at the story of Achan, it might seem to some of us that, like, what is up with God? It seems like he's being a little bit harsh. Like, how can God kill this man? All he did was kind of steal some stuff. And I think it's important to unpack that, and that's probably a much huger thing than we can do now. And, like, the actions of God in the Old Testament sometimes should cause us to ask big questions and to try and figure it out and understand a whole bunch more stuff. But just taking this particular story, if you follow the story, you see that Achan's actions lead to 36 other people being killed. And so suddenly it's not just this dude stealing some stuff. Because he did that, Israel got affected. The whole nation got affected. Because he did that, God's reputation got affected. Achan's sin was this. A couple of things. Achan's sin was God is not enough. 
having experienced 40 years of God's provision in the desert, having experienced God miraculously provide food day after day, having experienced God send water out of rocks, having experienced God take nations out, there's this moment where Achan feels God is not enough. I need to do something to protect myself. I need to make sure that I'm okay. Achan's sin was that I have to look after myself. Achan's sin was I need more than you. In a nation where everything was shared, where people looked after each other, Achan decided that he needed more than everyone else. I need to have my little stash. I need to take this thing and keep it for myself. So just think of those three statements. God is not enough. I have to look after myself. I need more than you. Does that sound familiar? And so it has an effect on the whole nation. It has an effect on God's name and reputation. And it is dealt with decisively. And that is the point in the heart of today's message is that we need to deal decisively with sin. Because unless we do, from temptation into sin, it leads to death. Extreme physical death, spiritual death, but also just the death of relationships and the death of purity and the death of life to the full. So just a quick recap as I close off, that the enemy is like a lion, that he wants to steal, he wants to kill, he wants to destroy. And if we do not deal decisively with the sin in our lives, it will take us down. Hebrews 12, passage I preached on the time before, cast off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And what that means, dealing decisively with sin, means something along the lines that if you're struggling with pornography, putting your pornography magazines under the bed is probably not dealing decisively with sin. If you struggle with alcoholism, having liquor in your house is not dealing decisively with sin. If you are struggling with going too far in a relationship you're in, Lying together with your person on a couch with the lights off at 11 o'clock on a Sunday night is maybe not dealing decisively with sin. We need to start letting our lives demonstrate the things that we really believe. We need to let our lives demonstrate the fact that the things we know are temptation for us. And different things are temptation for different ones of us. But you know what tempts you. And you know what brings you down. So how do you deal decisively with that? What are the things you can put in place that can start protecting you from the things that take you down? What are the things that put the lion in the cage as opposed to allowing the lion to roam around nearby? We need to nail that stuff to the cross. And I think one of the ways we need to do that is by starting to call sin, sin again. Sin feels like a politically incorrect word. And I don't know when the last time was you said sin, but I imagine there's some people in this building that haven't said the word for three years or five years because it feels so dirty and evil and horrible. And if we change it to bad things or struggles or whatever, it just feels a little bit easier to deal with. We need to start calling sin, sin. And God gets to define what sin is. We might like to redefine and we might like to make the lines, but God defines what sin is. And we need to start acknowledging that. And if we're wanting to be right with God, we need to invite him to deal with the sin in our lives. The last passage I want to read is from James 5 verse 16. And it says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And it's one area where, like, 
I know different people have different ideas about the Catholic Church, but one area where the Catholic Church has really got the idea or the concept of this right, confessing to somebody else. One thing that confession does is it brings sin out into the light. I can speak from my own experience. Sin that has been shared with someone that has been brought into the light loses so much of its power. Secret sin, the devil's got you. What if people knew this about you? What if people found out? Oh, they'd think you are such a worse person. They wouldn't put you in this position. They wouldn't trust you. The moment you share that with someone, it is out. And if you share it with a safe person and the right person, then the power has been taken down to some extent, and you can start working it out together. We need to be inviting accountability and discipleship. I preached another sermon on surrounding ourselves with godly people. We need to have people in our lives that aren't scared and that we've given the invitation to say, hey, I can see you struggling with that. Let's work through this. Or, hey, you stepped out of line there. You really need to sort that out. People that are able to notice when you are letting the lion prowl a little too close. And so to close off, I imagine Andrew's got some more songs that we're going to close off for the time of worship. We just want to invite you, as always, to come and share communion. But specifically today, I want to add it with the invitation of dealing decisively with sin in your life. Like, take this as a moment to confess before God, to put things right, to really just lay it down. And if you're not sure of what the sin is in your life, to invite the Holy Spirit to just shine a light. Like, God, what are the things that I need to deal with now? And just to make taking communion today a commitment to dealing decisively with the sin in your life. Let's pray. Father, even though the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, you came so that we could have life to the full. You have given us your Holy Spirit to live in us and give us everything we need to accomplish righteousness. And so this isn't a topic that needs to make us fearful because we know that perfect love drives out fear. But this is something that we need to take seriously. And I just pray, Father, that you'll help us to be aware not scared, but aware that we have an enemy. Be aware that there's an enemy that is wanting to take us down and being aware that you have already won the war. We know that you win. We know that it ends well, but there are going to be casualties along the way and we just want to deal decisively with sin in our lives so that we do not end up being those casualties and being part of making other casualties around us. And so, Father, as we come and share in communion together, we are reminded that your body was broken, that your blood was shed so that we could enter into right relationship with God. And as we symbolically take that today, we just want to thank you for that. We want to accept that. We want to confess the things that are holding us back from just living life to the full. Thank you, Jesus, that you came, that you left heaven, became a man, lived amongst us, experienced temptation, and showed us how we can beat it. We invite your power and your healing and your forgiveness and your grace and your love, and we thank you that there's always room at the cross for us to turn around and be sorted out. In Jesus' name, amen.